I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening. In many of the books I've read this fall, I've come across a sentence or a phrase that seems to contain the genetic code of the book, an essential and undeniable truth, beautifully distilled in a cluster of words. In Louise Erdrich's new novel, that sentence is, books contain everything worth knowing except what ultimately matters. Here's one I love from Norman MacLean's A River Runs Through It about the narrator's father. To him, all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation, come by grace, and grace comes by art, and art does not come easy. In Ann Patchett's new book of essays, I found a sentence that spoke to me like that. Nothing is more interesting than time, she writes. The days that are endless, the days that get away. Ann Patchett's new collection of essays is titled These Precious Days, and she joins us from Nashville, and it is good to talk to you again, Ann. It's been a long time, so thank you for doing this. Hi, Carrie. I appreciate you doing it, and it's good to talk to you, too. So one of the ways that you were contemplating time was in a writerly sense, how you're going to construct it in a novel, how it will unfold chronologically, or as you wrote in this essay, stutter and skip and circle back. You know, that seemed like such an essential decision, and it sounds like you make it at kind of the 11th hour. And I I wondered how, if it has been like that from the beginning, or you've come to that through the experience of your writing. I think in everything that I write, time is the most important factor. How much time will I cover? How much of a scene do I need to put in in order to get the general idea about what's going on across? How will I move time forward? Will it be linear? Um, And it is almost always one of the very last things I figure out before I start writing a piece. Time is easier to handle for me in nonfiction than it is in fiction. And I think that a lot of that is just the essay is shorter and the shorter something is, the easier it is for me to manage it. So there are, I I think the reason that 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 sentence spoke to me the way it did is that, you know, it's an oppositional construction of the sentence. And this is exactly how the pandemic has felt for me. Some days felt like they were never going to end and it was all the same and there was really no joy in the routine. But then when I look back, I kind of say, where did it all? It just kind of vanished. It's dust. I don't really feel like I have anything to, to show for it. What's your experience of the pandemic been when you think about time? I have no sense of how long anything has been. Like, I try to think about the last time I saw you, and I feel like, was that three months ago or 10 years ago? That seems to be the question that I'm constantly asking myself, which, you know, may just be me getting older and not remembering things. But time has had so little meaning while the pandemic has been going on. And I I just have a really hard time remembering how long ago things happened. How long was the bookstore closed during the worst of it? How long have we been back open again? 
you know, or I find myself thinking, how long ago did my dad die? I can't remember. Some of that may be because there was a kind of flatness to the days. I mean, I felt like my days were not punctuated by anything novel, right? New. I I didn't have those, you know, when in a given day, when you can be out moving around and seeing people you have punctuation with. Now that was the highlight of the day. And some of those pandemic days just felt like Groundhog Day, right? Get up, do it all again, and nothing was going to be different. Right. And for me, my whole life is broken up by travel. So I'm always thinking, oh, I'm home for four days, and then I've got to go to Cleveland and give a talk. And now I'm home for 10 days, and then I have to go to Boston. And now I'm home for two days, and then I'm going to go to LA. I mean, that's, that is just the whole rhythm of my life. So to be in a long stretch in which I am home, I slept in my own bed every single night of the pandemic, except there was, there were two nights when my neighbors, there was a death in the family and they had to go out of town. And I went two doors down to sleep in the house with their children at night. Those were the only two nights that I didn't sleep in my own bed. For me, that's absolutely a a wild experience. And I have to say, fabulous, because I wasn't always ramping up for something or catching up after doing something or recovering from something. It was a seamless continuum of time. And I got so much done. So I think the other the other reason that this that I've turned that phrase over a few times is I had a conversation recently with Kate Bowler. Do you know her, Anne? Do you know anything about Um, her? That's really funny because I got an email from her this morning. And so up until this morning, up until this morning, I didn't know anything about her. Um, But inviting you to be on her podcast. Yes. Yes. Did you put her up to that? Is that because of you? (laughs) She's marvelous. It is not because of me. She's wonderful. (laughs) And I can't wait to listen to the conversation. But um, so, of course, she is she's a writer and a religion scholar. And she has written very openly about living with an incurable disease. And she she has this remarkable realization that she has put into her new memoir. And she says, I found moments of enoughness without the promise of more. And think about what that means. Right. Well, I have to say, enoughness is exactly what I'm shooting for. I, I don't need the promise of more. I've had plenty. That was a great revelation that came really early in the pandemic. I remember just in the first weeks hearing Dr. Fauci say, no non-essential travel. And I thought, I don't think I've ever taken an essential trip in my entire life. I think that maybe I've gone enough places now. And what is essential is just that enoughness, not to be out, not to be looking around, but just to be home and settled. I thought a lot about Dorothy Gale coming back to 
Kansas and thinking if it wasn't in my own backyard, I never really lost it to begin with. That's what the pandemic has been like for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, what Kate is contemplating there is, you know, the uncertainty of how much enough she's going to have. I mean, she, she has to be okay with what this is now and what this may be tomorrow without doing that thing that is very human, which is projecting yourself into the, you know, the near or the far off future. We're just, I don't, I don't think I'm capable of that. And she's really learned how to do that. I think I am capable. That is something that I think, yes, that really does speak to me. Did you read that book, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating? No. Um, it's, it came out in 2006. I read it a week ago. Um, and I feel like it was the ultimate pandemic book. It's about a, a woman who is very ill and her caregiver brings her a plant and it has a little snail on it. And the whole book is just about this snail. It's just about watching the snail and everything snails do. Uh, it's not a metaphor for anything. <laughs> um, it is It is a very science-based book about snails. And I thought, yes, yes. I mean, it just spoke to me in the very deepest sense that what we need to do, what I need to do is slow down, be here now, as Ram Das would say. Uh, and and pay attention because this is a gorgeous time. And being aware of death, and I think that that's what the pandemic did for all of us, it, it raised our awareness of death and the lovely byproduct of remembering that you're going to die is that you look around and think this life is is really gorgeous. So you've written... Uh, I, I guess the centerpiece of the essay collection is this essay about your friend. Is it Suki? Am I pronouncing that right? Suki. Suki. Um, and I got the sense that she experienced this concept of enoughness. I mean, knowing when a day or a week had that quality. I, I mean, I'm thinking about that last day when you were with her and some of her friends at the beach in California, maybe it felt like that. Did it? Yes, it did. Because that's what we had. And I don't want to be in the position of wanting something else, wanting some alternate future so desperately that I am going to miss the present moment. I, I think that's kind of what it's all about. If you have recurrent pancreatic cancer, or even if you're absolutely fine, but we have no idea when the bottom is going to fall out, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any difference. What we have is this moment. So you have to train yourself to, to be in that moment. I sound like I am trying to uh, run a, a Buddhism seminar and um, <laughs> and I'm not but but that is just what 
struck me over and over again. My God, look, look at this, look at this world, look at this life. This is, this is very moving. I think, um, I think a lot of us don't, don't get access to that or don't feel like we have to, I think, as you said, train yourself to that kind of alertness and awareness until something somewhat cataclysmic happens in our lives, which is, which is what I sense your essays are about is particularly that one that don't, don't let that don't wait until your world is turned upside down to recognize that these two are precious days. Would you talk a bit about the realization of that as you got to know Suki over the years and then the time she spent with you when she was ill and receiving treatment in Nashville? Suki had an incredibly busy life. Um, she had worked for 20 years as Tom Hanks's assistant, had gone all over the world. It was a seven day a week, all day, every day kind of job. She had a marriage, two grown children, a lot of friends. Just, I mean, and it's true for a lot of people. Life is very, very full and things are always pulling on you. And what she had wanted to do in her life was be a painter. And she always thought in the future, there will be time and I will paint. And when she wound up in Nashville at our house, which happened by a really wild set of coincidences. I had met her very, very briefly two years before we had stayed loosely in touch. She got pancreatic cancer. She had a Whipple. She had chemo and radiation. She got better. The cancer came back. She was looking for a clinical trial my husband, Carl, who's a doctor, got her into a clinical trial here. She was going to come just for a couple of weeks until the trial started at UCLA, which was near where she lived. Then she was going to go home. Then the pandemic hit. So she's stuck, right? We're all stuck in the house. I've stopped traveling. Carl is now practicing telemedicine in the dining room. And Suki realizes very clearly that this is her chance. She now has completely empty days and she is going to paint and she paints every second that she's awake and so i think well if if you're making art and carl is practicing medicine i better go upstairs and get to work and so i am upstairs writing and and it becomes a sort of a hive but we all live in this extremely present tense way suki was a very private person we did not know each other except in the most tangential way. I mean, Carrie, you and I have met a couple of times, but it would be, I know you better than I knew her. It would be like <laughs> you came and moved in with us um, and then got stuck here. And Suki did not talk about herself. She did not talk about her family or her friends or her past. She lived in the day that we were in. We talked about exercise. We talked about what we were going to make for dinner. We talked about nature. We talked about the skinks that lived on the back porch and the birds that came to the bird feeder. We didn't talk about the past and we didn't talk about the future. And we made art. And it was great. That, that's so 
I mean, see, you would think that the kind of intimacy that was building day to day would have included some pretty deep and searching conversations. And yet, I mean... So what if you have deep and searching conversations that aren't about the past or the future? What if you have deep and searching conversations that are about right now? There, there's a part of that essay. Do you have your book with you, Anne? Um, no, but I can sure go no. get it in a second. I'm in my house. Oh, you know what? I just, I just turned my head, and there is one right here. This, <laughs> see, this is why it's so great to be home, and I could just bring the computer. Yes, yes, Carrie, I have a book with me right here. All right. Yay. Well, I'm thinking about the part of the essay where you've begun to have some of these more, I guess what I call searching, conversations with Sookie about her life. And then you wonder why you've been so careful about not asking her some of these questions. Um, I had a little note that it was at at the top of 293. You're exactly right. We will never know all the other things people worry about. She told me how lovely it had been to lay down the burden of her own vigilance, that at home she felt responsible for overseeing every aspect of her treatment, researching cures, double-checking medical orders. She had caught a few harrowing errors along the way near Mrs. But here she knew that Johanna and Carl always had their eyes on her, She had their protection, and that knowledge had opened up so much time in the day. We talked about the nightmare of health insurance and how the percentage of treatment costs she and Ken had to pay out of pocket had wiped out their retirement, had wiped out everything. I should have planned better, she said. You should have planned for the financial fallout of having pancreatic cancer twice? She said yes. How had I not asked her all these things before? She was perfectly willing to talk. She wanted to talk. And now she was leaving in the morning. Why had I been so careful? Because I was trying to protect myself. I had been afraid of how the story would end. You're listening to a conversation with Ann Patchett. Her new collection of essays is titled These Precious Days. Um, so with that realization that you were protecting yourself. And by that you mean from the pain of facing what was going to happen to Sookie. Is that what you mean? I don't want to presume. No, that's, that's right. So I think we do a lot of that in our lives. Out of what yes. we think is politeness, right? Yes. Uh, that's, it's very true. If it is the politeness sometimes of just not offering something because we think it's going to be overwhelming or the politeness of not asking too many questions, um, there are things that can be missed. And of course, you do want to be polite and you do want to be sensitive. One of the things that happened when Suki was here that's not in the essay 
is that um, her computer died while she was here. And it was really a huge problem because she was working and uh, she was doing all sorts of things for Tom and taking care of a lot of business from Nashville and the computer died and she really didn't have any money because all the money was going to pay for the co-pays for the treatment. And I said, well, you know, I'll get you a new computer. And she couldn't stand it. She absolutely could not stand it. Um, But it also absolutely had to be done. And And I just kept saying to her, I know this is really painful. I know this isn't what you want, but we have to do this. And she was like, I'm taking too much from you. I'm living in your house. I'm eating your food. I can't bear for you to get me a computer. And I finally said to her, Sookie, we have to stop thinking about your happiness and start thinking about my happiness (laughs) because I want to make you well. I want to... I want to help you with things that I absolutely cannot help you with. The things I want to do for you, I am incapable of doing. You have to be generous enough to let me do the one thing I can do, which is buy you a stupid computer to make your life easier because that's that's what you can give me because that's the thing that's going to make me so happy. And then the answer was, yes, I'll accept. Uh, yes, I will accept it in order to make you happy. But there was there was so much wrestling involved to get to that place. And it was also so funny to remember this because, of course, the computer store, everything is closed down. The computer store is right next to Parnassus, the bookstore that I co-own. and And the computer guys had card tables, two card tables out in front of the computer store. And so we went up to the card table and I said to Sookie, wait in the car. I'm going to go talk to them. And I went up to the guy and I said, here's my credit card. I don't want you to tell her what anything costs. And I knew these guys because their store is next to my store. Um, Whatever she needs, get her the better version of it. And I'm going to step back now. I'm going to, I'll go back to the car. She can go up to the card table. And that was the way we managed. You know, you write about your love for her and your grief at her passing and in a very open and unabashed way. And I read it and I thought, you know, especially when a friend dies, we just think, I, I think we still think of grief as private, something that should not be intruded upon. And you, you've opened all of that. And, um, and I wonder if that kind of goes against, you know, some kind of instinct that, again, we hold our grief close. No, I'll tell you, I got that lesson a long time ago. Um, when my friend Lucy Greeley died when we were 39 and I wrote a book about her called Truth and Beauty and many, many wonderful things have come to my life because of that book. But the best thing is wherever I go, people ask me about her. Whenever I give a talk, somebody raises their hand and they say, tell us a story about Lucy 
you know, I love that book. This is what happened to me. This book helped me. Can you tell me how it was for you? Can you tell me how it is? And I always say it's such a gift to be able to talk about your friendship and your love, to be able to talk about the people that you've lost. It, we feel like we don't want to remind people uh, of the people that they've lost. And I love being able to say to an audience, you know, if, ask your friend how she feels about her mom who died 20 years ago. Ask her how she thinks about her. Would her mom like this? What would her mom want to do for her birthday? You know, what was something great that you did together? Because it's a joy to be able to talk about those things and to remember people with all the love in your heart. And the other thing that happened because of that book, so many people said to me, how do you think things would have turned out if you had written that book when Lucy was still alive? And I thought, that was such a lesson. Don't wait to to express yourself, uh, both by telling people how you feel, but to also to write the story. There's a piece in this book about my childhood best friend, Tavia. And I thought, yeah, there's nothing wrong with Tavia. I just want to write a piece about how much I love her. It doesn't have to be that she's dying. Um, she She is the delight of my life. And I want to honor her without something terrible happening at the end. Um, Kate DiCamillo was here for Talking Volumes this season. And um, (laughs) it it was a lot of fun. But you have an essay uh, about her. And um, I interviewed her on stage and about the new book, The Beatrice Prophecy. And we started talking about how, as as noted in your essay, she has this extraordinary ability to tell kids the world is a tough place and they're going to be all right. And she described this moment that happened a few years ago, and we pulled a little bit of tape. Um, I'm just curious about what you hear when you listen to this. So let's listen. It was in South Dakota. It was 900 kids in an auditorium. And it doesn't happen all the time, that, but you could feel like these kids, 900 of them, they were so present and they got it. And, um, and they got this thing about like these, these things that seem bad actually give you something. And also, I'm standing up here and talking to you about these bad things that happened and telling you that you can be okay. Uh, it was just a, a fabulous group of kids. And I stood um, and uh, at the end of the show and like just talked to them as they exited. They had to get on school buses. And one little boy grabbed my hand. I can't do it. <laughs> you can. Um, and said, I'm here... And uh, my my father is in uh, California, and I didn't. I don't know if I'm ever going to see him ag- again. But you said that you're okay, so I know I'm going to be okay. And that that that's what a book can do, though. That's let let me get back on so track because you're very pleased with yourself <laughs> because, and I don't like that, Carrie. And what do you hear in that? Um, it made me, it certainly made me choke up. Uh, so Kate was visiting a couple of months ago 
and she was in the store. And one of the kids who works at the bookstore came in to see her. It was a Saturday and he, anyway, he was off, but I called him because I knew how much he loved her. And, and he ran over, he and his partner came to the store and he said, you know, the tales of Despero saved my life. That's it. And, and he said it, that's true for so many people. You just know that you saved my life. Um, that is a remarkable thing that she does and that she has the open heartedness, both at her desk and in front of people when she meets people and has those moments, she can remain completely and totally open. But, but I think that the lesson is you never know how you affect people's lives. I, I remember once I was at a college and the whole school had read my novel Run, which is about a woman who gives her child up for adoption and what happens to that child. And I was signing and signing. It went on forever. And it must have been 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Girl comes up to me in line and she starts to cry. And she said, I'm a freshman. They mailed us the whole freshman class this book during the summer. We were supposed to read it. She said, I was pregnant and I was going to give my baby up and come to school and start school as a freshman. And I read your book and I changed my mind and I kept my baby and she's crying. And I stood up and I'm holding this girl and she's crying. And I said, I don't understand this. This is a novel in which the mother gives the child up and the child finds a wonderful home and is really happy. And she looks at me and she said, but the mother wasn't happy. And I just thought, oh my God, you never know. You never know. And you're not there because that's what writing is. I bring half of the story and then the person who is reading it brings half of the story and they interpret it however they see fit. And that's where the book is made in that place between me and that young girl and, and between Kate and the boy getting on the bus. Yeah. And I guess we think that maybe kids, I don't know what, don't know enough yet to bring, this is the misunderstanding. The kids don't have enough experience and know enough yet to bring their half of the story. But Kate is the, she's the exemplar that they do. I mean, you, you say in this essay about her, how could she be telling these stories to children? Ah, yes, because children suffer. We had grown up and grown out of it while they were still in the dark woods listening for the voice of solidarity. Yeah, that's really true. I, I, I mean, I've read every single word she's ever written. And, uh, and I think all the time, how can you tell them this? And, and then I remember, I, I knew, I knew perfectly well, what was going on and how terrifying it was when I was a kid. But I don't want to think about it anymore. 
And I do think that it's comforting for children to read that things are scary because they know it. But I think that we have put so much cotton batting around ourselves, so much insulation that it it doesn't come through for adults in the same way. It is it may be more frightening for adults than it is for children is what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, when you were saying that, though, I was thinking we are also now neither you nor I have children. So this comes from observation and not personal experience. But we're also in a culture that wants to wrap kids up, the lucky ones, I guess, and protect them from that kind of knowledge. Um, Kate says, you know, Kate is out there saying, yeah, we know it happens. And you can't live a life without, you know, without some suffering. I think the idea that scares parents, you know, scares a lot of us. The amazing thing about her is that somehow she held that place. She held that eight-year-old Kate DiCamello. Um, and, and that person in her is just so present and aware. That's the amazing thing. And I have seen that in other children's book authors, the really great ones. They'd never forgot what it was like. One of the things that we talked about was, um, and she acknowledged that this, that she has a talent for friendship. You do too, right? Yeah, absolutely. How, how do you describe what a talent for friendship is? I'm, I am profoundly interested in people. <laughs> I, I really, as much as I am an introvert and I like to be alone, I find people enchanting and I want to hear what they want to tell me. It is, and I'm boy, I'm sure you know this better than anyone. People want to talk about themselves. People want to talk about the things that they're interested in. And if you are interested, if you lean forward and look them in the eye and you say, tell me, I really want to know, and you genuinely do want to know, I believe that's the greatest gift you can give to another human being is your interest and the light of your focus and your intelligence. And that manifests itself in having a lot of friendships. Mm, right. I mean, the other part of that is, again, in the way that we live with so much distraction, it seems like a singular moment to be able to say, my attention is shining on you. I'm completely here. At the moment, nothing else really matters. Now tell me. Right? That becomes, I think, a rarer, an increasingly rare experience. And I think about this a lot, that people don't have the, well, it seems like a luxury. They don't have the, uh, that experience very often anymore. There's always something else calling for attention. Even if, no, no, go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> right? While the phone's ringing or the text is coming in or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have a cell phone and I have never once looked at social media. 
<laughs> I've never, wow. I mean, I have literally never seen Facebook oh. and I wouldn't know what Twitter looked like. I, I mean, I don't do, <laughs> I don't do any of that. I don't watch television at all. Um, and it's, you know, we could talk about that all day, but it's just not something I'm interested in. I have a long format brain and I don't want my attention refracted. But years ago, this is, I'm going to say 10 years ago, it may possibly have been more. I was in Chicago with Renee Fleming. She was doing a Traviata and I went up to stay with her for a couple of days. We are good friends. And um, she was, she got a call from Peter Sellers, the, the great opera wow. director. And he asked her to meet with him and I got to go along. And at some point, meeting Peter Sellers was really as close to meeting God as I think I'm ever going to come. <laughs> but at some point, Renee got a call and she had to excuse herself. And I was sitting there listening to him. I said, may I take notes? I was writing down things he was saying. I have never seen anyone as present as he was with me in a bar talking. Mm. And I said to him before we left, I said, I would really like to send you some books. I don't care if you read them, but I, I just want to send you something and that's the best thing I've got. And he said, I really don't have an address. I travel constantly. Um, and he said, I, they won't find me. You shouldn't send them. He said, when I am with you, I am 100% with you. I am completely with you. And when I am away from you, I am completely away from you. I'm not thinking about you anymore. I'm here. I'm with you. I am thinking of no one else. But when I'm gone and I am with someone else, I am with them. That um, that really changed a lot of things for me. And it's what I aspire to, to instead of trying to hold an open place open for every single person you meet, to say, when I am with you, I am fully here. And that's what I can give you. I want to believe that that's achievable, but I can't imagine he, I mean, you know, people that you love in your circle have things that they're going through. And that, you know, I find that if something is happening to somebody I love, they are with me, whoever else I'm with. I don't know how to create that level of attention, but boy, I'm going to think about this. Wow. You said it changed things for you. How? It made me, I want to say it made me try harder to be more present, and it did. But it also made me not, it made me think about not wanting to hang on to everything. And, and I think that that applies to Sookie. You know, what I have is this time. It is amazing to me. It is a miracle to me that I have this time. But I do understand that when she leaves, I'm not going to have that anymore. 
And so I want to make the time I have as full as possible. And I, I think about that with a lot of people in my life. This isn't going to last. Nothing lasts. I remember my mother telling me when I was 25 years old, I got divorced and I moved home and became a waitress and lived in my mother's guest room. And my, and my mother said to me, every relationship you will ever have in your life is going to end. Every single one. Stop trying to make them last. Start trying to be in them when you're in them. And I was like, mom, so not helpful. So not helpful, mom. Um, and yet, of course, she was exactly right. You know, I look at my husband and I, and I think this will end. This will end. One of us will die. I, I do not think that one of us is going to leave the other one. Uh, you know, like I don't think we'll ever get divorced. I don't think one of us is ever going to run off, but one of us is going to die. This will end. And so keep your eyes open. I have a feeling you'll be, I'll be surprised if this isn't something that you talk with Kate Bowler about. I mean, this is exactly what, what she's writing about is, and knowing that the end may be, you know, sooner than, she doesn't know. There's a lot of uncertainty about that. But but understanding that, I don't know, like she says, these moments of enoughness without the promise of more. There's a Marie Howe poem. Boy, it would be so great if I could quote it perfectly, but a friend of hers was dying and they're at the beach together and it's this beautiful, beautiful night, and they're holding hands, and she says, I'm always going to remember this. And he says, I'm going to remember it right now. You're listening to a conversation with Anne Patchett. We're talking about her new collection of essays, These Precious Days, and I'm Carrie Miller. Um, Lauren Groff was here uh, also in September, and she is ever so cautiously thinking about opening a bookstore in the town that she lives in because there's a very small one and it's not open very often. And um, I kind of tucked that information away and thought, gee, when I talk to Anne Patchett next, I want to ask her about what every novice bookseller doesn't know that she doesn't know as she embarks on, <laughs> you know, on an endeavor like that. What don't you know that you don't know? about getting into this business. It's so funny you bring this up because Lauren was with me two nights before she was with oh. you. She was, <laughs> okay. she was at my store and I was interviewing her and we were talking about this and we've talked about it in the past. Um, also, uh, Kate DiCamillo called me not too long ago and said that um, she had had an opportunity to buy a bookstore and I said, oh, you should do it. You should absolutely do it. And then the next week I called her back and I said, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those things are so true. Uh, 
Parnassus is having its 10th anniversary this week. And this is so oh, much on my mind. Thank you. Um, how these last 10 years have changed my life. So much has been brought into my life. So much richness, so many opportunities and opportunities for friendship and for reading and for conversation, uh, for community, for love. It's been wonderful. And still there are moments that I will say to Karen Hayes, who's my business partner, what is our exit strategy? <laughs> we, we have no plans for getting off the ship. <laughs> we don't know how, how to wrap this thing up at any point. <laughs> so, Anne, what do you think of... Um of that sentence that I took out of Louise Erdrich's new book, uh, that books contain everything worth knowing except what ultimately matters. I love Louise more than anything. I love her new book so much as a bookseller, as a reader. And I think that that, sentence is exactly right. Uh, there's an essay in my book about cooking Thanksgiving dinner for the first time. And that I say, you know, I realize all I really need is a book. Uh, and, and that's the book is the thing that's going to get me through. It's going to teach me what I need to know. But of course, that love and connection, the willingness to extend yourself, to be hurt, to have loss, those things, which are the biggest things a book can't get you through and can't save you from, um, but they can do just about anything else. Uh, Louise is just, she's magnificent. I have interviewed her so many times and it's always, always, that's my greatest joy. Mm -hmm. So what if the customers at Parnassus they want you to kind of put your hands on some books and say to them, you must read this, and that it's special because it's come from you. Yes. The sacred contract with a book that you love is never complete until you can hand that book to somebody else and say, you have to read this. And there are books that are very easy to sell, and books that you're going to read anyway, you're going to read The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. You're going to read, you're going to read Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. You're going to read Oh, William by Liz Strout. But you might miss The Days of Africat by Asali Solomon, which is a book that came out this fall that I felt so passionately about. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Scientist by Richard Rhodes, which is a biography of E.O. Wilson. And I have always adored E.O. Wilson. That's not a book that your regular fiction reader is necessarily going to put their hands on. So I can say to people here, you know, you might, you might not have seen this one, but this is, this is something that you need to read, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. Who knew? Who knew that a very small book about a snail could make all the difference? Is there a book that over the last 18 months while we've been 
you know, mostly solitary, out of our routine, staying home that has been especially comforting to you or something that you, that you found because you had slowed down. You know, you were able to experience the book in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been able to, traveling and doing your, your usual things. There were two books that I read during the pandemic that I wanted to sell, that I just felt like this was the book that people needed. Because what people kept saying is, I want something smart and a little funny that isn't going to crush me. I want a book that's going to be intelligent, but is also going to pull me up. And the books that I gave them that I found that I just, they were the universal donors. Everyone loved them. Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. I don't walk into the bookstore without selling someone a copy of Sorrow and Bliss. Meg lives in Australia. The book is set in London. And I think that there are just a lot more people in Australia and London reading the book than, than have read it here. But it is very moving. It's complex. It has a bad cover. It looks like chiclet. There's nothing chiclet about it, but it made me laugh out loud on every page. Writers and Lovers by Lily King. Also a book that it was like people would come back and say, yes, this was the book that I could read. I've been so distracted, but this is the book that I could read. And, and Lily's new book, uh, Five Tuesdays in Winter, the collection of short stories that just came out, also excellent. And then a book that's older that I found recently um, by Ross Gay called Book of Delights, in which he writes down something every day that he finds delightful in the world. And I would read just one or two of them every night before I went to sleep, and I would have good dreams. It was the most amazing thing. If I could fall asleep every night with Ross Gay's voice in my ear saying, look at this, this is beautiful. That There's nothing better than that. Anne, thank you. This, is, this has really been wonderful as it always is. And I, I'm grateful for the generosity of your time. I am so grateful to you, and um, I just always love talking to you. I really do. You're listening to a conversation with Ann Patchett. Her new collection of essays is titled These Precious Days. <laughs> 